Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Connect on BlogTalkRadio.com. Catch us on the web at umconnect.info. Welcome to this latest episode of Connect. I'm Michael Rich, the Web and Communications Manager for the Western North Carolina Conference. And today is the second show of a series sponsored by our call and vocation team. And our guest this morning is Bruce Stanley, who is the President and CEO of the Methodist Home for Children in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, prior to that, he has worked in a number of United Methodist churches. He was also the director of field education at Duke Divinity School and was also on the North Carolina Conference staff. So he's had a wide variety of uh, uh, jobs within the church. And so welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you. It's awfully good to be with you. Well, good to have you here. And um we were talking right before the show, and uh, Bruce is actually uh, at a Board of Ordained Ministry meeting in the North Carolina Conference, so we're not going to keep him long, but I just appreciate your time today. Well, I'm always delighted to talk about this particular subject, and I uh, hope more and more people are uh, engaging in the deep act of listening. Well, great. So let's just go into some questions. So give us a little background of where you're from, where did you grow up, uh, the kinds of things that led you into ministry. Well, I was born in Grafton, West Virginia, actually born into the uh, small United Methodist Church uh, there where Mother's Day began. And okay. lived there for a brief period of time. And uh, my father was a pharmacist and uh, had gone to work for Eli Lilly back when their pharmacists had to be, uh, or back when their sales force were all registered pharmacists. Worked for them for a while, was about to get promoted, and did not want to live in Indianapolis, and really came to a prayerful decision himself that he'd gotten into pharmacy because he wanted to help those who were ill and hurting, and uh, made a decision for high-worth life over a high-wealth life, and bought a struggling drugstore in his hometown of Nutters Fort, West Virginia. So hmm. he uh, he moved us there, and um, for the first six months or so, he actually lived in the doctor's office that was attached to it, showered and, until he could uh, get the family situated. And I had the privilege, really, of um, growing up there behind the counter in that store and watching uh, my father and my mother uh, go to work each day. And it was a great and beautiful way to, uh, to be raised. And among the things uh, that my mom and dad were, were great lovers of Jesus Christ, and since they love Jesus, they love the things that Jesus loves, uh, which include the church. Mm. And my siblings, uh, and I, there were four children in the Stanley family, but my siblings tease me sometimes and say that the reason I went into ordained ministry was because uh, my dad did not, and, and that uh, <laughs> it was really his. It was really his second choice for career, and uh, and and he was a pharmacist, uh, but he was a Christian first. And I think uh, most of what I know about good and God, uh, I, I know from the privilege of having been raised by two uh, wonderfully devoted parents. Very nice. So where did you end up going to school? 
Well, I am... Um, started uh, at a small Presbyterian college, and back in those days, my family was, uh, I was though I was baptized as a Presbyterian, uh, we went to whichever church the Presbyterian or Methodist was closest to us, uh, because mm-hmm. the family would walk. My father, uh, the only vehicle we had was used in the family business. And when I finished high school, uh, we were attending First Presbyterian Church in uh, Clarksburg, West Virginia, and under the uh, illusion that I somehow, as a poor, uh, pathetic high school basketball player, was going to be able to be a good collegiate player, <laughs> I went to a small college, Davis and Elkins, in Elkins, West Virginia, mm-hmm. which is a Presbyterian school. Okay. And and, and went with the idea that uh, I wanted to become a, a church historian. But uh, I only remained there uh, one semester. And after having been there for that semester and seeing that my primary job was to fold towels and fetch water, uh, realized that the dream was not going to come to fruition, and I transferred to West Virginia University. Okay. And uh, as I as I look back on that, uh, it was clear to me why I went to WVU. I thought uh, a it was incredibly uh, affordable, one hundred thirty five dollars a semester, and b uh, all of my family had gone there, and it was a, a place that I had grown up loving. But what I did not even bother to explore was who the people were in the religious studies department. And there were three members of, of the faculty who were there, and uh, two of those three had their THDs from Harvard Divinity School. Wow. And the chair of the department was uh, Manfred O. Meissen, and uh, Dr. Meitzen also had a Ph.D. in physics from Rice. He was uh, fiercely brilliant. But he uh, took me under his wing and encouraged me, uh, was kind enough to have me and a couple other students uh, to his home on occasion for dinner. And on a, uh, an annual basis, he would bring faculty from Harvard Divinity School down to West Virginia in order to do lecture series. And uh, in and around those lecture series, he would uh, arrange events so that we would have chances uh, to interact with the faculty. And he uh, greatly encouraged uh, a couple of us uh, in order to follow in his footsteps and attend Harvard for Divinity School. Okay. And it seems foolish to me in retrospect, but I did not even apply uh, to any place else, and why I thought they would admit me, I have no idea, but it probably was through Dr. Meitzen's um, influence that I was uh, able to gain acceptance there. Okay. Yeah, I had uh, a couple of professors uh, when I was in college that went to Duke, and that's how I ended up at Duke. Uh, We find our way that way. Well, tell us about your call story. How did you uh, find your way into ministry? Well, there's an attorney in Clarksburg, West Virginia, who I believe is now 92 years of age, uh, and his name Mm. is Stuart Waters. And when I was in Sunday school uh, and in fifth grade, uh, I distinctly remember this, and Mr. Waters is always happy to keep the memory alive for me. Uh, After uh, Sunday school one morning, he asked me if I would stay for a moment, which was a little bit unusual. Mm. And we sat there in the classroom, and he told me that he prayed every day for each one of the students in his class. And he said that uh, generally that was a fairly formal thing, and he tried to be faithful with it, uh, but he didn't know that there was more to it than that. But that he had been getting a word from God for the last several weeks, he said, that was clear beyond exception that I was to become an ordained minister, and that he wanted Stuart to know that that's who he had under his care, and he was to teach him well, and he was to encourage me and share that word with me. And Mm. I'm in fifth grade and had really no idea what to make of that. Probably the uh, next experience I had somewhere around that time, I entered Boy Scouts. 
and mm. had a wonderful scoutmaster, Bert Leachman, who was an Episcopal layperson and a uh, great man of faith. And almost from day one when I joined the tribe, though there were, or, or, or joined the troop, excuse me, though there were a number of older scouts, uh, Mr. Leachman, after just a couple of months, came to me and said he thought that I should be the troop chaplain. And even though I was one of the youngest ones who was there, he wanted me hmm. to be in charge of uh, leading the, vo- the devotionals and doing the worship services. So I started doing that um, at that point in time. And off and on uh, through high school, I had some experiences. One of the things I don't have is any music. And so when I would go to choir practice, they would find speaking parts for me in order to go. keep me included and not ruin the product. And I will freely admit that when I went off to divinity school, uh, I went off with a dual degree in uh, history and uh, religious studies from West Virginia University. Had taken, uh, in addition to Greek and Hebrew as an undergrad, I also had had a smattering of Latin and had four semesters of German and thought I wanted to be a university professor. And I understand. And quickly after I got there, um, I looked at what I perceived to be the lives of the doctoral students, which was they were spending their time uh, in the bottom of the library, tucked away in a carol, and uh, were surrounded by books constantly. And I came to the conclusion that while I uh, did love uh, the portions of the work that were academic, reality is that I needed to be around people. And I had entered in the uh, Master's of Theological Studies uh, degree track with an emphasis in Reformation history, uh, but after my first year, transferred to the uh, Master of Divinity program and, um, and and graduated with that degree. All right. Well, um, how would you describe your call in just one or two words? You've given me a, a long uh, look at it. How How would you... Uh, compact that into one or two words. Providential. Hmm. And, and well, that's one big the, one word. Yes, that's one. That's one big one word. And uh, it seems to me, uh, at the uh, as I look back on my life, uh, and I will be turning sixty later this year, that at every step along the way, the Holy Spirit was preceding me, and uh, God was leading where the Spirit had preceded. And I may not have recognized it at the time, uh, but God managed to place people uh, in and around me who surrounded me uh, with love and, uh, and and who really showed me the importance of life in the church. Well, and you served in a lot of ways. You're, your your background is you were ordained a Presbyterian. However, uh, you never served in a Presbyterian church. You ended up in the United Methodist system, and you've done a lot of different uh, things. Uh, one of them was um, you were the director of field education at Duke Divinity School, and I guess that, that was right after uh, Russell Ritchie left. Uh, yes, exactly. And um, my wife, when that opportunity first presented itself, uh, laughed out loud. And one of the reasons is that when I had changed degree programs while at Harvard from MTS to the Master of Divinity, the thing that was holding my graduation up was I was behind on my field education requirements. And I had to I had to complete those. I had the coursework all done, but I had to stay uh, an extra semester in order to finish my field education requirements, and was uh, more than a little frustrated about it at the time. And, uh, and so she chuckled when the uh, opportunity for for me to engage in that particular ministry came up. Yeah, I understand. Well, you know, it, it was sort of a life changer for me. And you know, Russell Ritchie was. Uh, 
there when I uh, came through the system. But um, what's interesting is is that those little placements uh, uh, that many uh, Duke Divinity uh, grads can tell you about, now, th- those were just experiences that we couldn't do without. Um, it, it's amazing the kind of learning that happened in some of the smallest rural churches of uh, North Carolina. And I would say that the position I currently occupy at Methodist Home for Children, I can trace back uh, to my work in field education. And I had a wonderful supervisor whose name was Dick Beam, and I Mm. was working at the Pine Street Inn uh, in Boston, which was a massive homeless shelter. It slept 350 in beds and uh, sometimes over 1,000 during the cold winter months. And the Pine Street Inn was necessary because a year or two before, in response to an expose about the uh, Bridgewater uh, Mental Hospital, they had closed that facility with the idea of doing community-based mental health services, and the streets were flooded with the homeless, the poor, and the mentally ill. Mm. And watching the way that Dick Beam encouraged people and watching the way the staff uh, interacted with them uh, really let me know that this was a place uh, of great, not only great passion, but of, of great need for the world. And I still uh, remember fondly uh, the way he encouraged me to think about that and the care for the poor and the marginalized as being the focus for my ministry. Well, as the director of field education, what what was the thing that uh, you wish seminary students understood more about their call um, before they arrived? It would not be uncommon for a prospective student uh, walking into the field education office in order to talk with me about what might possibly uh, take place during uh, that part of their degree experience were they to be admitted to claim with great enthusiasm, uh, I am called by God. And my response almost always was to look at them and the smile and to say with great sincerity, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and they would almost always take a step back and wonder, what in the world do you mean? And I would tell them that as great and as wonderful as an experience as it is to know that with some certainty, that if they were truly being called by God, uh, then they better put their seatbelt on. And Mm. many, many of the tasks were going to be personally rewarding, incredibly engaging, and yet it was going to be difficult, it was going to be demanding, and it was going to require a tremendous amount of surrender of self. Yeah, that would have been good advice. For me, no doubt about it. Yeah, I came in thinking, oh, I was just going to move on, get into a Ph.D. program, and local church was not going to be my thing. And uh, I think Russell Ritchie uh, heard that and said basically, well, I've got two places I'm going to send you over the next couple of years, and um, that will change everything. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah, I didn't have a single uh, field ed placement that was leading to my thing. And lo and behold, uh, I did need a seatbelt, and I did end up uh, uh, finding all kinds of things that God had in store for me. And uh, one of the things that I used to uh, try to do with the students who were there was to encourage them to solicit uh, criticism and to try to get feedback. Because one of the things that I think most of our church members don't realize is that uh, authentic uh, a critique for the good of the kingdom of God is hard to come by. Mm. And people want to be sweet, and they want to be kind, 
and particularly for a 22-year-old student who's not just in their first uh, field education placement, but in some cases, really in their first job. Uh, people want to just pat them on the back and tell them how awesome they are and how wonderful, uh, even though they've just failed miserably or preached so poorly that no one could comprehend what they were trying to say. Hmm. And I always encourage the students when they went into, into placements to please try and locate and find some people who you know to be kind, but who also will be forthright. And it will tell you some things that you need to hear so that you can be made better uh, for service to God. Okay. Well, why don't we take a break now? We'll come back and talk a little bit more about call and vocation uh, with Bruce. So here's a word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Jim Parsons, the chair of the Call and Vocation team for the Western North Carolina Conference. We are thrilled to partner with UM Connect to bring you some unique conversations in 2016. Our team is focused on cultivating a culture of call within our conference. For more about our work, please visit us at isgodcallingme.org. The United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina is a ministry of the church for the church whose mission is to build the church for generations to come. We fulfill this vision by investing in people, as well as helping churches and related institutions invest the financial resources that God has given to them. My name is David Snipes, and we look forward to the day when you give your United Methodist Foundation a call. And you can find out more about the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina at the sponsor page on our show's website, which is umconnect.info. And so we're back with Bruce Stanley, and I was thinking back uh, to all the stories that you must have from Field Ed. Um, is there any you know, particular student that comes to mind or any story that came through that really illustrates a uh, call to ministry, somebody that uh, found that call as a part of uh, your Field Ed program? I can think of several, of course, and it really was a pleasure and a privilege that I did not deserve to be able to participate that in that and watch that. A couple that were really, to me, just outstanding and thrilling. One of them was with Reverend Jose Villasenor, who hmm. was an El Salvadoran, and during time of great turmoil, uh, in El Salvador and Civil War, had suffered incredible personal loss, having one brother uh, captured by guerrillas and tortured, and another younger brother uh, lined up and at age 16 uh, killed with several others in a firing squad. And uh, when Jose came to the Divinity School, uh, he really was sponsored by uh, some Baptists uh, who had met him through his work with Habitat for Humanity, uh, which he uh, was running in El Salvador at the time. And they kept encouraging him to think that he needed to be more and more in a pulpit setting. And uh, when Jose came and I listened to what he had said, I knew he had tremendous church experience, had been in a pulpit and uh, served uh, as a pastor. He was already ordained in the Baptist tradition. And we had had a request uh, from Central Prison to send them a field education intern who was fluent in Spanish. Hmm. And when I chatted with uh, Jose about that, he was certain that uh, he did not want to go there. Uh, he had some <laughs> awfully uh, raw personal feelings about the folks who had wielded guns and had committed crimes and victimized other people and was insisting that I needed to send him instead to a congregation. And I made that placement 
And uh, I won't say that he uh, fussed and wept uh, while he was with me, but he let me know that he was willing to go, but only because of the financial reward and that uh, he intended to have a different placement at the end. And by the end of the year, uh, Jose came and, and sat, and uh, one of the things that he said was that he was uh, wrong about the necessity of being there, that he had gained far more than he had given, and that mm-hmm. he had come to understand that the uh, gospel is for all people. And it is uh, it is for those who are predators as well as for those who are victims. Mm-hmm. It is for those who have suffered as well as for those who have inflicted suffering. And that uh, we can't do ministry in Jesus' name unless we truly are going to care for those uh, who have committed outrageous acts of evil and, uh, and incredible sins. And he went and humbled himself and offer, offered himself in uh, some beautiful and wonderful ways. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And I also had a uh, another student, uh, Cleve May, and Cleve and his wife Amy, by the way, um, have just recently adopt, fostered and then adopted a special needs child with Methodist Home for Children. And, and so uh, they are people whom I greatly admire and have enjoyed being able to continue to be in relationship with, even though uh, we, were, we are not together at the Divinity School any longer. But Cleve's father uh, was an administrator with Young Life. And when Cleve grew up, uh, that was really his faith community, was Young Life. They were not rooted in congregational life anywhere. And mm. Cleve was uh, insisting early on in his uh, field education interviews that he wanted to maintain his relationship uh, with that ministry, which does do a, a wonderful job, particularly reaching uh, non-churched youth uh, in high school settings. And I insisted that he needed to be tied and yoked to a more traditional congregation. And Cleve came in at the uh, end of his placement and sat and talked with me and he said he appreciated my steadfastness and my doing that that he knew he had uh, resisted but he was uh, glad that I had proceeded with my original plan and said that God had humbled him and that as he had been reading scripture uh, he was reading that the church is truly the bride of Christ Mm. and he said I came to the conclusion that no matter how wonderful Young Life and other parachurch ministries are they are bridesmaids, and they are not the bride themselves. And I had fallen in love with a bridesmaid, and Jesus is calling me to love the bride instead. Wow. And uh, and, and, and Cleve has proven to be just an outstanding uh, local church pastor and has uh, got a new church start city well in Durham, uh, which is okay. a congregation that's rooted in its community and is, uh, and, and is growing in some beautiful ways. But th- those are a couple of... Uh, of, of stories about what I thought were really some transformative uh, field education placements. Yeah, uh, and it sounds like uh, uh, your leading of uh, uh, field education at Duke is not uncommon to what I experienced while I was there many moons ago. And uh, <laughs> it, it is amazing uh, how uh, uh, getting that uh, that different kind of uh, placement than you were expecting makes all the difference in the world. I I did have a student come in one day uh, as as they were preparing to go out for a summer placement to an area that they were unfamiliar with and and a church that they uh, knew no one from. And they said, I hope you know that we're all on to you, which (laughs) was a great conversation starter. No doubt. I said, all right, tell me what you mean. And he said, well, you get credit for being so wise and making exactly the perfect placement uh, for each student. And people want to say that you listen well and that you understand the supervisors. He says, but the truth of the matter is, 
if the church is willing to receive the gifts that the student has to bring, and if the student is willing to go with a spirit of humility and to offer Christ uh, to that church and not make the placement about themselves, you can't make a bad assignment. Ministry will happen and things will work out. And I had to laugh and say, you're right, you're on to me. <laughs> if you've got no a doubt. willing congregation and a humble, willing student, things are going to go well and uh, and Christ will be present. Yeah. Well, let's get back to you. How has your call evolved since that fifth grade uh, uh, awakening from a Sunday school teacher to, to now? How has it evolved, especially working outside of local churches? Yeah. Well, when I finished uh, at Divinity School and finished up at the Pine Street Inn, I had a chip on my shoulder with regard to the church. Mm. And I was convinced uh, that the real work uh, was out in the streets, and it was with the poor and the marginalized, and that the uh, folks in the church were self-satisfied and uh, were living in a cul-de-sac of comfort. And we, my wife and I made a decision to move to North Carolina, picked it off the map literally, and she got a job teaching in Wilmington, and uh, Martha Tyson, whose husband Vernon, uh, mm-hmm. achieved some acclaim uh, as being the um, center of the uh, wonderful book, Blood Done, Sign My Name, uh, right. was the Wilmington District Superintendent. And Melissa, my wife, was a first-year teacher, and Martha had taught for 20-plus years, and she took this young teacher under her wing. And Martha and I got to know one another, and she sicked Vernon on me. And when I, and Vernon, Vernon told me that he had a place uh, in the district he wanted to send me, and when I would complain that the uh, church wasn't always interested in the world outside, he would just nod and say, well, yes, of course, that's why you need to lead them there. And when I would say that people were self-satisfied or perhaps hypocritical, he would say, of course, those are the only people God has to put in his church, and, mm. uh, and, and we need to have you there with them. And he was so patient with me and li- listened to what was uh, no doubt naive uh, statements by me and, mm. and arranged for me to, to go work um, at Grace United Methodist in Wilmington. And while I was there, I was encouraged by a, a wonderful senior pastor, Bob Baldridge, to go ahead and proceed with ordination uh, through the Presbyterian Church, even though I was working in a contract capacity for the Methodists. And as I was doing that, uh, one of the great lay people in that church, a woman named Lucille Wedby, who owned uh, Wilmington Hospital Supply, took me to lunch and tried to discourage me from becoming a United Methodist clergy person. And she said some very complimentary things to me, but she said, in her opinion, I should stay in the Presbyterian Church because she thought with a call system that a person could rise as far as their ambition or talent would take them, And she was worried that if I became a Methodist, that in the Methodist system, that clergy appointments were made for reasons other than the talent or ability of the clergy, and I might Mm. not get to serve a congregation I deserved. And I really respected Lucille. She was uh, quite a skilled business person and a a wonderful church person, and I ran back to the church and was uh, a little bit upset and wanted to talk to Reverend Baldridge, and he wanted to know what was going on, and I told him what Lucille Wedby had said and repeated that she had claimed that if I became a Methodist pastor, I might not get to serve a church I deserved. And Bob jumped up from behind his desk (laughs) and said, isn't it great? (laughs) (laughs) And and it was a spiritual dart for me and and really just a confirmation, I think, uh, of what God wanted me to be and wanted me to do. And Bob said, you think about what she said literally. Uh, What's the congregation you deserve to serve look like? And who could possibly be present there? 
and we only get to be part of this ministry because of the grace of God, and it is a privilege that none of us deserve. And then he went on to continue and say, if Lucille was trying to make an argument for you to not join the Methodist Church but remain in an open call system, he said, I think she has just made an argument that you cannot deny as to why you should become a United Methodist, that Mm -hmm. you should humble yourself before God and be willing to go where the bishop would send you, and that your appointment ought to be based upon something other than your own desires and ideas. It shouldn't be about you. And, And that was a beautiful thing for me. No doubt. Well, your call has taken you through a number of uh, churches, through um, the Divinity School. Now you're at the Children's Home in in Raleigh. And um, that brings up a whole other set of things. And you sort of come uh, round trip, you said, from um, your field ed days in uh, Boston. But um, I'm wondering, uh, in your work with children and youth, and, and many of them uh, in, in difficult situations. Um, how do you see uh, these children, and how do they uh, deal with call and vocation in their lives, and, and how do you see yourself doing ministry in that place? And in, in addressing this, particularly with this population, is difficult. Um, if you want mm. to you know, determine at an early age uh, who's going to be a 16-year-old felon uh, or drug abuser, it's going to be a child who is raised in a high-stress, low-stimulus environment. Mm. And if you want to determine who's going to succeed uh, and, and be healthy and well uh, at age 16, you flip the script, and a child has to be raised in a low-stress, high-stimulus environment. And so that is what we are about trying to create and trying to create create an environment in in which they are exposed to things that are of good and of God so that they might be receptive to that. Um, While I was at the Divinity School, uh, we were privileged to get some research that the uh, Fund for Theological Education uh, had paid for, and they were trying to determine what uh, were the conditions necessary for a person to be able to hear a call from God, and they really boiled it down to four things. The first one was that a person had to be raised in an environment or a home uh, where the principle of what they called interiority was celebrated, and that is that you think deeply about the meaning of things and spent time dwelling inwardly. You had to be raised in a home where art was appreciated. Nobody needed Mm -hmm. to be a painter. Nobody had to be able to sing or play a musical instrument, but there had to be appreciation for the arts. You had to be raised in a home where people valued worth over wealth. You could have both, but the important thing was always wealth. And then the fourth thing was that the the conversation in the home did not revolve only around the family members themselves, but about the needs of other people. Mm. And when I think back about those four elements, I know they were present in my own home, and part of what we try to do with our foster parents and in our group homes Uh, where we've got children uh, for various purposes in residential facilities, is that we are trying to create those same four factors and make that part of our therapeutic environment. That's very cool. So um, I'm going to give you just, uh, you've got to get back to meetings, but uh, I'll give you uh, 30 seconds. What what is your word for people um, wanting to hear a call to ministry? Uh, What would you say to them? with all your Martin experience. Luther yeah, Martin Luther said that there are two calls that there is the internal call uh for which one must listen deeply 
and that God is the great hound of heaven, uh, he mm. said, and um, uh, quoting St. Augustine, and uh, will continue to nip at the heels of those whom he wants to serve. But there's also the exterior call. And, and it must be seen and observed by people around us. And I think it's important uh, not only to listen for God to speak, but it's also important to test that with uh, family and friends, the people in our congregations, and those who know us best, and uh, to please be open and not be afraid uh, to say yes to the leading of God. Very nice. Well, we're going to uh, make that your closing. Uh, thanks for giving us your time today, and thanks for being a part of this series from our Call and Vocation team. All right. Well, thank you. It's been a privilege. And thanks, everyone, for listening to us on Blog Talk Radio. The show will be available as a podcast at our Blog Talk page and on the show's website, umconnect.info. And we're going to be back next week connecting United Methodists and their stories. Thanks to our sponsors, the Western North Carolina Conference and the United Methodist Foundation of Western North Carolina. You can find out more about them on the Sponsors section of the website, umconnect.info. I'm Michael Rich, and you've been listening to Connect. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.